morning and welcome to Chanel. We are glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, I want to comment on this past weekend. I'd be remiss if I didn't, because uh, this city, Little Rock, has, has been through a lot. It's been a, a difficult weekend, and the city of Little Rock is on a, a long journey of rebuilding and, and rehealing. And so what we want to do as a church is we want to kind of organize this internally. And so if you're interested in the, the work, the physical work being done, you can talk to John Crabtree. He's going to be our point person to kind of help you know where to go if you're interested in kind of getting your hands dirty, uh, moving stuff, helping families that maybe they need you know tarps over their roofs right now. John Crabtree is your point person. If you don't want to do the physical labor, J.J. Childers is going to be our point person for that. Uh, J.J., I'm, I'm kidding, but uh, J.J. is another person to reach out to if you're interested in that. And then what we are going to do internally as a church is on our social media channels and our emails, we are going to help direct you to the organizations that are already established, that are already working within the city and set up ready to go. Uh, now is not the time for us to put our logo on something or to create our own organization, but uh, the time right now is to help what's already being established and what's already in process. And so look for those on our social media channels. We'll email them out as well as they become available. But the, the two individuals to talk to you right now are John Crabtree and then JJ, and then I will help direct you in whatever way I can as well. Let's uh, pray for our city, and then we will turn our attention to this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, God, uh, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together, Lord, to sing praises, to share in communion, to study your word, but God, but as a community, we are reflecting right now on our city. Uh, there are people without homes. Uh, there are people that have lost everything. And God, we ask that you give them comfort, that you give them peace. But in this moment, God, we ask that you put it on our hearts to serve. God, to put it in our hearts to not rebuild just tomorrow, but to be with them along the journey. That in the next week, month, year, God, as they continue to heal, they continue to rebuild, God, let us be a part of that in whatever way you need us to be. And so just that we pray, amen. Have you ever had to do something difficult? Maybe it's a conversation, a situation at work that you know was going to be hard for maybe a short period of time. But on the other side of that, there would be sunshine. There would be relief. I want to tell you a story about a year ago at the ladies' brunch. Now, I'm normally here when the ladies meet for their monthly ladies' brunch, and it is an awesome luncheon. I would encourage you to come to that if you can. But about a year ago, I was here, and I was obviously in my office. Isla has told me multiple times that I'm not a lady, I'm not allowed. So I follow the rules. So I'm in my office, they're having the brunch, but Isla goes, and she loves it. She's excited, and so she will often come in and out of my office and tell me what has happened or let me know when somebody has come in. And so she's in and out constantly. And, and my children have kind of full reign of my entire existence. Uh, and that includes my office. And I have this habit of putting my car keys at a place that is accessible for a three-year-old. And so in one of the journeys in and out of my office, she grabbed those car keys. And I, I was working, probably on a sermon, but I was working and, and didn't really comprehend that she had taken the keys and left until uh, it was time to go. And I, I started kind of panicking a little bit and I, I pulled Isla into my office and I said, hey, like, you took the car keys. I, I saw you take the car keys. I need to know where they are. And she just did that smile where I was like, oh, you didn't do anything wrong. Um, but 
I was like, hey, but seriously, like, you know, daddy needs his car keys. Like, if, if we're, we're going to leave here, like, I, I need to know where my car keys are. And she just smiled and giggled and, and kept on. And so for the next 40 or so minutes, I panic searched. Because at this point, just to keep you in the loop, I had not told Whitney about this. And so at this point, it's just I and me trying to figure it out on our own. And, and so I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking through trash cans. I'm looking through, like, I think there were some women that were still there. I was like, can you please look in your purses just to make sure that she hasn't put them in there? And I remember thinking, like, I am going to be in trouble because I've left out a detail that I had this really bad habit of fidgeting with my wedding ring. And I like to kind of spin it on my finger. But one of the things that I really enjoy doing is taking it off and then spinning it like you kind of do with a quarter. And if it's ever kind of just out, what I normally do is I will loop it into car keys. Some of you are catching up. So... I remember in this moment of like, all right, I've got to tell Whitney. Like, we've lost these car keys. I, you know, I guess we're back in the bus. You know what I mean? Like, that's my, my backup vehicle. But I, I remember going to Whitney and saying, hey, I've got, to, I've got to tell you this really difficult thing. Like, Isla and, and I, I guess I'm part of that. But specifically, Isla has lost these car keys. And I can remember Whitney being a little bit upset. I said, I think you're upset right now, but I'm going to go ahead and add a little bit to this. Uh, and let you know that the, the wedding ring was on there as well. Not happy. And that's when I talk about those challenging, difficult conversations, knowing that eventually we would get past it. I still have not been allowed to buy another wedding ring because I haven't earned it yet. But um, lost the other one. You know, i got to earn it. But my point is, like, we've all been a part of that, right? Those, those difficult seasons where we know if we can just get past them and get to the other side, that things maybe will be better. Our story this morning continues with Jesus still dealing with the disciples and their lack of understanding. Last week, we, we ended with the disciples arguing over who would be first. And this week, really, the story begins with Peter promising Jesus that he's not going to deny him. And, and I wonder if, if Peter's just reaction and response to that has a lot to do with not wanting to be the betrayer. But as this, this scene ramps up, we often go to moments and, and situations to find peace and solitude. And, and that's where Jesus, what Jesus does here in this story in Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus went, up, went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, the Mount of Olives overlooked the old city of Jerusalem and, and likely would have been a peaceful place to find quiet and connection with God. But it would have also been an elevated place to overlook the city of Jerusalem. As I reflected on, on this particular text, I thought a lot of the story of Jonah, one of my favorite Bible stories. If you remember how the story of Jonah ends, Jonah ends in an elevated position hoping that God will destroy the Ninevites. In a similar way, one of the last scenes in Jesus' life is he's at an elevated place overlooking people, hoping that God spares them knowing that the season, the moment that Jesus is about to enter into will spare these people, that he will go to the cross for them. And a detail that I've missed for a lot of my life is that the disciples go with Jesus. I know and I can comprehend that story, but I often wonder why they go. And for me, it's because they're still trying to follow Jesus. And I mean that in a spiritual sense. They, they're still trying to learn and grow and connect with Jesus. But in this scene on the Mount of Olives in verse 41, Jesus says these famous words. 
Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours. Luke goes into this dramatic retelling of the story when he describes the pain and anguish that Christ experiences as he prays. The next verse says, In his anguish he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And this this image that we get of Jesus' pain and suffering takes a turn when Christ returns to his disciples. So when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep. I've always thought this was like a joke. Like a moment in the story where Luke is trying to add humor to this. But One of the commentaries that I was reading by a guy named Daryl Bach, he wrote that the reason why they have fallen asleep is because of the rapid acceleration of events has physically wore the disciples down. There's so much happening in this moment, they physically cannot handle it. And they're exhausted. I think it's an important note here to remember that these are just young men excited to follow someone who they believe to be the Messiah. And this crowd shows up in verse 49. It says, While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to, Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And then this other scene happens that has often blown my mind. Let's go to the next passage. This is when Jesus' followers, one of the disciples, saw what was going to happen. They said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Would you see the eagerness, the desire to protect? It says, one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. And for a moment, remember what I talked about last week with Judas. Now, Judas doesn't want to be a part of this miracle parade. He doesn't want to be a part of the healing. He wants to be a part of a revolution. And in this last kind of exchange that Judas has with Jesus, this man's ear is cut off. Let's go to the next slide. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. I imagine this was yet another frustrating point for Judas. (laughs) See, here he goes again healing people. But I want you to see something in a broader sense of what Luke is painting here. Because outside of the resurrection, this will be the last miracle, the last healing that Jesus does. And it's for a servant. Someone who would have been looked down on, not cared for, would have been kind of a lower class person. It's a servant. But if we remember where Jesus' miracles start, it's at a wedding where he turns water into wine. And in that story, the first individuals that see the miraculous power of Jesus are servants. If you want to put bookends on miracles, it starts with servants and it ends with the servant being healed by his ear, being healed by Jesus. And we know the story. We know how it progresses. In verse 66, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Next slide. They asked, are you the Son of God? You say that I am. And this is where Pilate comes into the story. Because I don't think Pilate ever wanted any part of this. In fact, Pilate doesn't believe them, but at the end of the day, Pilate is a politician. And for political capital, he has to at least entertain their claims regardless of their merit. 
And in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 23, the unruly crowd says, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be the Messiah, a king. We've been along for the road for this. You've heard me adamantly say that Jesus was not coming for a revolution. He was not coming to overthrow the government. And I promise you the people that knew that he was not going to overthrow the government were were the Romans. And another staple of Jesus' ministry is to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So there was this, this movement that was created there about like, we are Christians, we are not of this earth, and because we are not of this earth, we are not paying taxes. And Jesus says, no, 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 you've got to pay taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. But I want you to see what, what Pilate says. Because you see it in his response. He says, are you the king of the Jews? He doesn't zero in on anything besides this line. The concern here is, isn't for the religious community because he knows that there's no, there's no merit for the first two claims. And he ignores them and he just goes into this, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate is saying, this is the only thing that we can talk about. I know that you're not throwing, overthrowing the government. I know that you're paying taxes. And Pilate doesn't want anything to do with this. And like a lot of us in situations where we, we look for those exit ramps, Pilate thinks he's found his. And it's clear that Pilate thinks that he has a way out of this when they insisted the crowd. So the next slide, Miles. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. The second that Pilate hears the word Galilee, he thinks, not my problem. This isn't my jurisdiction. I'm not responsible for this man because you can almost feel it where he's like, you said Galilee first. You said Galilee. And so what they do is they send Jesus to Herod. Herod would have been in charge of this region. But Herod has other plans. Because Herod has heard of Jesus. So when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. Look at why he wants to see Jesus. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Some translations say some magic. He wanted to see something that would catch his attention, that would entertain him. Plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. I wonder if Pilate thought, out of sight, out of mind, not my problem anymore. I've sent Jesus to the right place. I'm going to go back to reading my book. I don't know what Pilate was doing that day, but I promise you that Pilate thought that he was off the hook. But then when Herod doesn't get what he wants, he sends him right back to Pilate. And Pilate is tired of their games and baseless accusations. Pilate informs them that neither he nor Herod could find anything of merit to charge this man with. And in verses 13 and 14, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. And Pilate starts considering alternatives. Because Pilate, again, is a smart politician. He doesn't want a government being overthrown. He wants order. He wants people to be afraid of the Romans. And so he starts looking at these alternatives to kind of keep the crowd controlled. And so Pilate considers another option. 
And this is where we are introduced to a man named Barabbas. And as they start crying for Barabbas, we learn a little bit more about him. He's actually been a part of an insurrection. And he was in jail for murder. You see, Pilate believes that this fits the mold for what they are after. Someone causing political issues. Someone who has blood on their hands. Pilate is like, I literally have what you're looking for. Literally in jail, being prepared for execution, we have someone. And so Pilate offers an exchange, something that is very uncommon. We don't see this anywhere else in history. Kind of a prisoner exchange like we see here in just a moment. And there's this belief in this story that when when crucifixions occur, that, that one can be released for another person. And I need you to know that outside of the canon, there's not a lot of evidence to support this legal practice. And there's this, this idea, too, of who Barabbas is. In Aramaic, Bar is son, and Abbas means father. And so in, in reality, what this individual's name is, is son of Abbas, or son of the father. I'm presenting that to show you that there's this nameless element to who Barabbas is. He doesn't mean anything to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the individuals bringing Jesus before them. He's just someone who they can replace for Jesus. And isn't it ironic that the very charges that they claim to want Jesus tried for are found within this nameless criminal? Yet Jesus doesn't talk. He doesn't argue. He doesn't point out the obvious. Do you see the irony here? You see that that what you are wanting is found in this nameless man. And the crowd becomes insistent. They don't want punishment at this point. They want blood. They want death. And these are the same people who likely cheered and welcomed Jesus into the city, now want life taken from him. Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. You can feel the tide turning. The momentum for Jesus now becomes about hating Jesus, about wanting to kill Jesus, when days ago it was about welcoming him into the city with palm leaves, heralding him as the Messiah. An exhausted and worn out Pilate finally relents and allows the masses to have what they want. And in verse 23, with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. The next text in verse 24. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Don't you see how Luke writes a lot? I love the the Gospel of Luke. It's the one that I, I connect with. I've probably studied it more than any of the other Gospels. And Luke is pointing out the obvious. He's like, the one that has the charges that they want someone tried for. Barabbas. Pilate wanted Barabbas dead. It is to Pilate's advantage to kill someone who is trying to literally overthrow the Roman government, someone who has murdered somebody. Pilate presents Barabbas as, this is who I want to go to the cross. And yet the very people who welcomed Jesus into the city of Jerusalem days ago, they are the ones who say, crucify him. 
As we reflect on these scenes before the death of Christ, I hope you see that in the last moments of Jesus, the echoes of life and teachings of Christ during his ministry. For example, in Luke 23, verse 30, or 26, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Random man by the name of Simon is ordered and told to carry the cross for Jesus. And as we reflect on who Jesus was, how Jesus lived, how Jesus served, how many times did Jesus lift the burdens for others? Through healings, through miracles, or simply noticing that another person existed, Jesus carried crosses for others. In verse 27, the very next one, we see individuals who stuck with Jesus. And those who followed Jesus in his last moments are women. It says a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Often overlooked and dismissed in this society, they are the individuals who continue to follow Jesus, even in the most painful moments. Remember the 12 individuals who spent the most time around Jesus at this point in the life of Jesus are denying him. They're running away, they are afraid. But yet the marginalized, the people whose society has said, you are not worth counting. We talked about the feeding of the 5,000 in class this morning and how men are the only individuals that are listed in the numerical recording of that because they didn't even care about the women and children and the grandmothers and uncles, everybody else that was there. They didn't care about them. But the people who stick with Jesus are the ones that are often overlooked and dismissed. And finally, in his last moment, there's the inclusion of the other criminal. Some of his last words, Jesus informs the other criminal, today you will join me in paradise. Inclusion and welcoming, bringing one, one last individual into the kingdom of heaven. Where Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The last phrases that we see of Jesus in this scene are, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Again, I keep going back to Judas. How frustrated he must have been that Jesus continues to forgive even when blameless claims will lead to his death. And when he had said this, he breathed his last breath. So we close, I want you to imagine a movie where the main character dies. In almost every movie or depiction, that's the end of their story. That's the end of their character arc. And there's so many applicable things that we could say about the suffering and death of Jesus. Suffering that I believe Luke even struggled to record. But what I need you to leave with this morning is a reminder that this is not the end of the story. For us as followers of Jesus, individuals that live in the resurrection, this is just the beginning. And in this scene, in this last passage, darkness is here, but light is coming. As we turn our attentions towards Easter Sunday next week, we have hope, we have joy, and we have a reminder that the death of Christ, it's not the end, it's just the beginning. Let's stand and sing together.